Between the two of them, David Isay and Dan Collison have won just about every single journalism prize that there is. They are both successful, independent, full-time documentary producers, which we know are a rare breed, with their own production companies. But more importantly, what they have in common is that they've made it their life's work to show us people and places overlooked by much of society. From mentally ill inmates housed in prisons to teenagers growing up in Chicago's projects, from a young mom undergoing a life-saving bone marrow transplant to men who call a flophouse home. Dan Collison and David Isay are also friends and professional sounding boards for one another. In this session, ear to ear, they're going to play excerpts of their documentary work and talk about specific challenges, triumphs, and surprises they've encountered while producing stories. Let's welcome David Isay and Dan Collison. Can you guys, can you hear? Hi, how you doing? Um, first of all, Johanna, this is, I just want to say that this conference is just so amazing. I mean, just, I, I think for um, those of us who've been doing this for a while, something like this, just to look out and see all of the young folks who are here and uh, to see how far radio has come in the last few years is never, I, I can't imagine anything like this having happened five, six, seven years ago. We're really in the midst of an exciting time. Um, and uh, I'm glad you guys are here and I'm glad that um, we're all a part of this. Because radio is, as you all know, this really amazing medium. Um, and it's terribly underutilized. And we all have to go out and tell the world how, how easy and fun and, and great it is to use little mini disc recorders and cassette recorders to go out and tell stories and how, how cheap it is. Um, so we're going to do this really informally. Um, hopefully you guys will have a lot of questions, and we're going to play some tape. We're not going to play a whole lot of tape. We're going to play a lot of little excerpts um, and, uh, and talk about those and mostly just answer questions. Um, Dan, do you want to say anything? Well, I just wanted to second uh, all the work that Johanna and uh, Julie Shapiro have done to put this together, um, and I, I do hope it continues. It, it looks like it will for many years, so thanks a lot. This is what it, I feel like I'm at the UN or something. <laughs> this is so fucking weird. Um, okay. So I, um, I, I run a nonprofit with some other people who are over in that area over there called Sound Portraits. And our, our mission, it's, it's the company's, I've been doing radio for 13 years or something like that. Dan and I have been working together for, since the very beginning of when I started. And, Dan, you'd been in it for a few years before that? About 20 years. 20 years. So, and I'm, I'm at like the 13 or 14-year mark at this point. Um, I'm one of the five people who discovered Dave Isay. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Sound Portrait's mission is to tell the stories of people living on the margins of um, American society and to find poetry in places you wouldn't normally expect to find it. Um, and... I have a bunch of stuff I'm going to play for you, but I, I thought we'd just start with something that's like not so serious and kind of early on stuff. I mean, now the, what we do at Sound Portraits is very much not non-narrative, but we're not in our pieces. 
Um, we always have narrators from wherever we go in and do stories tell the stories. But I want to play a piece, an excerpt from a piece from maybe eight or nine years ago when I was still in uh, My Stories Are Stories. And this is from uh, a piece about a guy who, um, who has kept an obsessive diary of his life for the past 25 years, a guy named Robert Shields in um, Dayton, Washington. And because we're all kind of obsessive people here, if we've taken, made the insane decision to go into radio as a, as a career. Um, this, Robert Shields spends every moment of his life writing down everything that happens to him, and it virtually chains him to his typewriter. So this picks up in the middle of the story and goes to the end, and then, um, and it's kind of just meat and potatoes radio work. Um, and we can, we can start by talking about that and talking about how a piece like that comes together and then get into more complicated stuff. So this is, this is an excerpt from Diary Man. Ernst. Robert Shields says that he kept the diary on and off for much of his life, but it was not until 1972 that he began to keep this minute-by-minute -minute record. I just kept going, and then I thought, well, I don't want to stop now, and I kept going, and I don't want to stop now, and I, I just kept it up. Why are you doing this? <laughs> it's an obsession. <laughs> That's all I can say. It's an obsession. <laughs> I, I don't know. What are you trying to do? I don't know. I don't really, I really can't answer that. 5.45 to 6.15. I read more from the Oxford Dictionary quotations. I ate half a dozen large archway sugar cookies while I drank two cups of milk. This In his diary, Robert Shields records everything he eats. He records his blood pressure and pulse at various times during the day, the temperature outside and in, every conversation he has, every piece of junk mail he receives. He sleeps no more than two hours at a time so that he can record his dreams. Robert Shields has also scotch-taped a variety of his life's keepsakes into this diary, for instance, samples of his nasal hair. For DNA purposes, it, it might, in years to come, they might be able to figure out my genetics from having a, a physical artifact. What is this in your diary? Oh, uh, whenever we purchase anything, like meat particularly, I peel the stickers off and put it in the diary because then there's a record of uh, how much we bought and what the price of it was. 8.35 to 40, I peel meat labels from a quarry to mount in the diary. Bacon is up 20 cents a pound. T-bones are terribly high. I bought them to feed Dave, I say, Sunday evening. I don't know if they will... It is somewhat disconcerting to see the extent to which this task has taken over the life of Reverend Robert Shields, chaining him to his typewriter on this endless endeavor. Shields, it seems, is so busy documenting the insignificant minutia of his life that he has become oblivious to everything else going on around him. How does your family feel about this? Never asked him. <laughs> what about leaving town? I don't leave town. I haven't left town since 1985 uh, to visit my brother in Tennessee. Uh, I, I don't like to be away overnight because it gets me behind. If I travel to Walla Walla to do shopping, it puts me behind in the diary. I have to take notes all the time and get back, and it takes almost a day to catch up with the notes. So I, I avoid going out. I avoid being away. Yes. <laughs> 3.05 to 3.30, I read the Tri-City Herald. A sniper it's my makeup. It's my nature, I suppose. What would it do to you if you just stopped? It would be like stopping, turning off my life. 
Rev. Robert W. Shields writes and lives in Dayton, Washington. 3.20 to 3.25 in the afternoon, I took the readings given in the margin. Humidity, 51 and a half. Porch temperature, 56 degrees. Porch floor temperature, 51 degrees. The study temperature, 77 degrees. And the door temperature in the study on the door jam, 74 degrees. So, so that's a um, that's a sort of typical kind of accent tracks with uh, sound piece. And I don't know. Do you guys have any questions about how the thing was put together? I mean, I can just tell you briefly. Uh, and I know I, this is probably I, you guys probably know this, but um, you know, I just you you do the interview in quiet, and then I asked um, him what he listens to when he's you know, typing his diary, so we did five minutes of ambience of that, and then um, and then typing sounds and just mix it all together. Um, but that's that's one of the last of the. Are there questions about that piece or yeah? Go to the microphone, please. Say what? Um, I'm Peter Clowney. I uh, work at WNYC. Um, when I listen to that piece, I wonder in the editing and the construction. How much do you, you think about avoiding playing for freak, playing for compassion, trying to construct the whole sort of character that we get, where some of us are laughing, but not all of us at the same moments? You know, not the jokes land as both things at once. That's, could you yeah. talk about that? I mean, I don't, I'm not really, I, this is, uh, I tried to tell the story, I tried to kind of present him as I saw him, and I'm not really so conscious of that. I mean, I, this was, he was, he knew what, what we were doing, and this was something he wanted, um, and actually it gave him a lot of joy to have the story done about him. I mean, whenever I'm doing these pieces, I think of, I think of all these pieces as sort of like kind of carefully constructed, loving audio portraits of people. I mean, it's just sort of painting a portrait of who this person is. And, um, you know, and I'm very, one of the important rules is, um, you know, full disclosure, you know, no shortcuts. You know, you go in and you say what you're doing, and um, and then there aren't any surprises. Um, and especially when, I mean, that's not, I don't do pieces like that anymore. Um, but, um, and, and, the, and when you go in, particularly to prisons or wherever you're going into, um, it's, it's really important that people understand exactly what they're getting into. And I'm very clear with him in that if we do a three-hour interview that I'm only going to use, you know, 10 seconds if I'm going to use 10 seconds of it. Um, so it's just about being honest and open and, and, and you know, if, if I feel like I'm not screwing him, then chances are that he's not going to feel that way either. So if that makes any sense. I wonder if you could talk um, about in with this person but also with some of your other work. Uh, where do you find this guy? Where do you where where do you find? You have these a great people? voice, by the way. Um, I for that this was a project where I traveled around the country for a bunch of years doing stories about visionaries and eccentrics and characters in in wherever in in the United States for a series I was doing um, that was uh, CPB funded. My first actually this was the first uh, funded thing I ever was able to do, um, and. It's the same way that I find stories now. I mean, we sent out, I would pick an area of the country and I sent out faxes and letters as far and wide as I possibly could um, saying I'm looking for like amazing characters and when you walk into their world, it's like walking it like you can't actually believe that 
this exists, like just these kind of moments, these wonderful places um, and people. And then I'd get lists back and I'd go through the lists and start calling down the lists um, and, and picking stories and then eventually kind of hone it down until I found the people who seemed like they'd make a good radio story. So there's no, there's no spontaneity in this at all. I mean, it's all kind of carefully done, looking for the right character um, before you go in to, to record something. And not that that's the only way to do it, but that's just the way that I, that I do stuff. Let's move on to... With him, probably an hour. Yeah, I think it's real important also to to be honest with um, the people that you're doing stories on and, and, and to feel as though you can send them a copy of the tape. I know so many um, stories that I've done where a person has been interviewed before hasn't um, gotten a copy of the article or hasn't gotten a copy of the tape, and, and they're a little bit bitter about that. And I, I don't know why that is. Maybe we're all just busy and we don't get a chance to send it, but I always try to, to send a copy of the tape to the person that I've, or the people that I've done the story on, and it kind of keeps me honest because if I, I sort of feel like if I can sit in the room and, and listen to the tape with them, then I've done the story justice. And if I cringe and want to run away, then I know that there's something wrong. So I think that's sort of a little, you know, device that I that I use. Um, I've been finding that I've uh, been gravitating toward prisons and jails lately, and I, I can't figure it out, but. Um, maybe it's that, that these are really the sort of the forgotten people um, and that the society really wants to kind of forget about and throw away. And um, this, this uh, excerpt that I brought to play first is from Texas where they lock up probably more people per capita than any place in, in, the, uh, in the world, and they release... 150 a day, so it's this incredible cattle call where they, they round them up from all over the um, all over the state. They have, you know, probably what 20 prisons around the state, and then they come to this one place, and then they they have this process. And um, so, a photographer friend and I um, stayed for three days, three different days, documenting the process. And I've um, wanted to do it non-narrative because. I sort of feel like I hate to, I hate to track. I, I, it's like the worst thing. I don't know about anybody else, but I just don't like doing it. And it's um, that's not the reason why I think non-narrative is important. But um, I, you know, I just feel like that I get in the way. And there are these great moments, you know, that you can get in a good story. If it's a good story, you have you know one or two good moments, and then I would come in and ruin it. And I just got sort of sick of that. So I was looking for ways to take myself out of it and, and sort of go directly um, for more authenticity. And, and, and really, and we talked about transporting people to the place. And so I think in this piece, what I wanted to do is to try to, you know, really viscerally get you to feel like what it's like to um, get released from prison. When you get out to the street, y'all go down a set of stairs. When you get down that set of stairs, go across the street, get on that sidewalk, go to your left, straight down that street, about a block and a half on the right, be Greyhound Bus, they'll cash your checks down there for nothing. 
Steak dinner. Steak and salad. Oh, man, I haven't seen a girl in so long. Hello, world. And just to have that warm feeling with the lady. Free at last. It's like being born again. Free at last. I'm free. Thank God. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Beautiful thing. Don't look back, dude. I'm trying not to. Don't look back. Whatever you do, don't look back. Package of uh, Marlboro, menthol. Package of short candles, cold classic. Package of M&M's. Besides the gum, sir, anything else you need? Yeah, cool, uh, Salem regular cigarette lighter. Salem regular? New $20 bills. Counterfeit. Different, huh? The money is different. The world has changed. Jesus. How much is the phone call now? 35 Oh, man, I don't even know how to dial the numbers. Collect call? Yes, I'm trying to make a collect call to... Hey, Ma. What's up, Ma? I'm in Huntsville. It's me. I'm catching the bus. All right, tell them I'll be at the bus station in, in Austin probably about uh, I'll be at the bus station in a couple of hours. Tell them to be there. What you cook? I love you too. I'll see you when I get there. All right, I'll see you when you get there. All right, all right. See you later. All right, bye. Well, it felt like the other piece of my my life had come back into me because he had been lost. Lost and I couldn't I couldn't grab him because he was doing the things that he wasn't supposed to be doing. I shot that guy, you know. I shot him. And, and I shot him because he was, you know, I was intoxicated. He was, he was trying to beat me up. I mean, <laughs> for some, some stranger, you know, he just went off and so I, I had to do something. And I, what I did was wrong. Prayers help. Prayers do help. He's back. Like he told me that he wanted to return home. I told him he can return home. He'll always have a home. Always. No matter what. I'm still his mom. Regardless. I'm still his mom. The first night I was out, I mean... Just laying here, quiet, peaceful. I mean, just laying here, you know, just staring in the dark, no lights. You can hear the hear a car pass by every now and then. Felt real good to be home again. Felt real good to be alive and be home again. Anybody have any questions? 
Thank you. Um, my name is Todd Melby from Minneapolis. Uh, could you just talk about microphones? Do you use a shotgun mic or uh, just something like this that you hold? Um, a Neumann 191 stereo microphone that uh, I want to thank Rick Madden and CPB for in 1991. It was one of the first purchases, and it's, it's held up great as a stereo mic. Okay. Thank you. I, um, listening to that uh, piece, I was thinking, um, again, about what an amazing time we're in, just, just knowing that obviously there was, you know, something like that would have been difficult to do without, you know, digital editing software. And um, it's just kind of miraculous. Um, Stacy Abramson, who works with me here, is um, who's somewhere over there, is doing a project with these kids who um, just got out of Rikers Island, where they're uh, they did recordings with mini disc players, which, as you know, cost $198. I'd never used it before this project, and microphones, the simple Shure microphones that are $98, and iMacs, which are $800, and are able to to do this whole highly produced project for you know. No money. I mean, there's a kid who just got out of Rikers Island who got a, who just took a computer home, and and you know downloaded free Pro Tools software. This is a 21 year old former armed robber who's like at home playing with Pro Tools and like mixing stuff. And it's just we're just in this you know amazing era. Um, I use the same mic as Dan uses, um, but you know the the it, there's there's just noticeable differences issues here. I mean, mini disc players are really good, um, I think. And, uh, and people can get by with, with equipment that doesn't cost a lot of money at all at this point. Um, Dan, I'm interested in, can you do a blow-by-blow blow of where you recorded the audio for that and, and maybe how much time, you know, you recorded? Three, three days of um, the same thing over and over. We, it started in a gymnasium, so by the third day, we sort of got it down, you know, where people were going to be. And that also um, moved out with them. They went through this process. It takes about three or four hours, um, where they they get uh, they get their clothes. Um, they get it's really strange. They they um, they get thrown you know whatever size you know happens to look like what they wear and this sort of bizarre colors combination. And then they just walk out onto the street, and, and most of them don't have anybody there. Um, in that one case, there was a sister there. And they kind of look around, and then they head up to the uh, uh, Greyhound station in the store. And then we, two days, we hopped on the bus and rode home. Uh, we kind of, you know, tried to, um, you know, it's it's tough because this is a, a, a tough time for, for them. Um, but we convinced them to... Uh, you know, see if we could come home with them. And, and uh, in this one case, the mother um, had this, you know, sat with the guy's name is Rocky and just sat and, and talked. So it was three full days of doing that. Um, and I think it's probably was necessary to, you know, to get enough of those layers. So you guys have both done stuff with prisons and criminal justice. And I just was curious to hear where, like there's kind of a growing small um, collection of that kind of work being done, I guess, on radio now. And I'm just curious to hear where you think um, 
one, where you're going with that, and two, um, just if you could talk about um, the kind of um, the kind of rise in a small way of audio and prison issues, like the kind of radio interventions. Well, I, I think that um, I mean I know one reason. You know, radio is great for getting into, um, as I said our, in our mission statement, for getting into dark corners, you know, and prisons are dark corners, and radio is great for getting into hard-to-access, closed, dark spaces, and radio is great for kind of creating that space. You know, Dan was talking before about, uh, you know, pulling yourself out as, as a narrator, and that's something that, you know, over the years I've done as well. I mean, I think of it sometimes like in The Simpsons when you have Krusty the Clown and you've got, he's got the... Um, He's got the big spotlight, and he's, like, sweeping it until it disappears. I disappeared myself also, um, and it's for doing stories like this prison, like prison stories, because you can, with radio, which is, you know, the different mediums are great for telling different kinds of stories, and radio happens to be great for telling, you know, intimate stories, emotional stories, and um, for, for getting into closed places and bringing you to those closed places. So it kind of matches up really well. As uh, as a radio story, but I'm I'm kind of losing my train of thought. So Dan, you take over. I mean, just I think there's um, there's just so many stories in in that haven't been told. You know, I mean, no one really, um, you know, really has until I think uh, maybe maybe recently. I guess there is a little bit of a, you know, uh, I don't know if it's a renaissance, but you know, there has been. And in radio, more attention paid to, to prison issues. But, I mean, there's just so many people in there with stories to tell that it, I don't know, I just grab, you know, it's just a natural place, um, especially when, I mean, what I, I try to do is just run away from, like, the breaking news story, you know, just go in the opposite direction. And, and one place that's pretty obvious is a place that, you know, that you can't get to. And, and there's people just sort of, I don't know, it's just, so many, so many different stories to tell that it's it's almost untapped, and also just because of the fact that radio is so cheap that you can have a crew of one or two people and it costs you nothing. So doing social justice stuff, which is often, which can be hard to raise money for, um, and certainly isn't commercial in any way, shape, or form, is 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 appropriately done in radio. And also, radio is great for people who can communicate best through speaking, and maybe for one reason or another, not as well through writing or. Um, you know, don't want their pictures taken or whatever. Um, so it's just for many reasons. A and because it's, you know, there's this huge, it's this hidden, you know, part of society. Um, and I think that we should probably move on to more tape because, like, we're almost, like, we're more than halfway through and we've gotten through one clip each. Can, is, that, is that okay? And then we can do more questions? I'm going to just play, um, I'm going to play uh, a few minutes from a story I did um, in Chicago a bunch of years ago, which was actually... Um, paid for by WBEZ, which is uh, a reason to pay for this, in their Chicago Matter series, which has generated so much incredible stuff. And this was, I don't know if this was the first year, Joanna, Johanna can maybe, I don't know, but this was a piece I did in 1993 called Ghetto Life 101 um, with two kids in Chicago who um, I gave tape recorders to and asked to uh, record a week in their lives. And they took their tape recorders around and then we worked together to put together this piece and we ended up doing stuff after that. and and. But this is the beginning of, of that project. And uh, Lee Allen Jones was 13 at the time. Lloyd Newman was 14. And this is about um, six minutes from Ghetto Life 101, which is track two. Ernst. 
Living around here, you get shooting all the time. Like Vietnam sometimes, you might hear boogum, 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 sound, boogum, boogum. I remember one time I was over my auntie's house spending the night. We playing Super Nintendo. I hear this lady out. I heard you been looking for me, nigga. Then she just boom, 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 boom. She let off about eight shots. Then I heard the other gun fire off. And we were just still there playing her. Like nothing that happened. And then you Vietnam, them people came back crazy. I'm living Vietnam, so what you think I'm going to be if I live it and they just went and visited? Living around here, man, it's depressing. Man, it's depressing. It's not a normal childhood by any means. We're back at Lee Alex's house. Sister back here asleep in her room. Can I interview you? Come on. Uh, Janelle, tell me about yourself. Well, I'm very energetic. I like to have a lot of fun. I like to drink a lot. No, I don't. Yes, you do. You smoke marijuana? No, I don't. Yes, you do. Tell the truth. No, I don't. You're 17? Yes. I have a child. Yes. How old were you when you had this child? Fifteen. You see, how many close friends of yours has got, have got killed through the years? I don't know. I can't count all of them. It's been a lot, though. You think it's around 50? No, I don't think it's that many. But it's around 30 or 40? Probably somewhere in that area, maybe a little less than 30. Do you know the, who killed or murdered these people? I know who killed someone. Like who? Like Bill. Who killed him? No, I ain't gonna tell you who killed Bill. Who else? I know who killed Slick. Who? I don't wanna tell you that either. Uh, who else? Cheesy. Who did who killed him? I ain't gonna tell you that either. Thank you. My grandma sleeps across the hall from my sister. Well, she keeps now, Janelle, and the rest of us. She's been through a lot in this house. She spent a lot of years worrying about her children. Now she has to worry about her grandkids. But she's a strong woman. Sometimes I'm thinking about what might happen to the family if my grandmother dies. A lot of times I've had dreams that she died. And when I wake up, I run upstairs to make sure that she's still there. I get onto the bed with her and my grandfather and talk about all kinds of things. Like what my grandfather was like before he had all his strokes. He was wild. He liked to stay out in the street all the time. He over there batting his eyes. Yeah. He acting like he sleep. I see them eyes going to try to see what you thought about. He go to work all day and stay out in the street all night. Didn't he work at the cow company? Stockyards. He worked at the stockyards as a lugger. He would carry the cows on his back. A cow weighed 1,500 pounds. He, he dug it. He carried half of it and put him up on the hook. How did you carry them cows, Granddad? How you didn't get squashed? Get a half with a cow. How? On your back. That's why we all got strong backbones, huh? Yeah. My grandmother says she gets her strength to carry on, her wisdom from the Bible. She loves gospel music, and of all the songs she knows, the one she loves the most is called One Day at a Time. Could you please sing that song for us? With my voice all messed up. Do it. One, two, one, two, three. Do you 
remember when you walked among men. Well, Jesus, you know, if you're looking below, it's worse now than then. They're pushing and shoving. They're crowding my mind. Lord, for my sake, teach me to take day at a time, one day at a time, sweet Jesus, that's all I'm asking of you, so help me today, show me the way, one day at a time. She was hoarse, but she still can blow. Thank you. This is Lee Allen Jones. Hello, I know. Peace out. Peace out. No, goodbye. Uh oh. So that was just that that was the ending of, of ghetto life. Um, do you guys <laughs> any like maybe one or two questions and then back to I think I heard maybe, oh, I'm Sarah Harris from Marketplace. Um, he did tracks, I guess, in the studio a couple of times. Did he yeah. write them himself? Yeah, we, we uh, the way that, um, the way that we, th that was the first piece that I did that was kind of like this, um, an audio diary piece. And one of the first pieces, it was narrated by the person who is, the, the story is about. Um, and the process of writing these tracks is, um, is usually the same. I mean, basically, he kept audio diaries and at night. Both of the kids did, and those were transcribed. And we use those to start. Um, you know, I would cut the tape along with them, and I always do tape first and then script at the end. Um, and and when I knew I had to get from place A to place B, I'd either try to use what had been said in narration if he's describing someone um, in his diaries, or I would call him on the phone and say, I need to get you from your, you know, your living room to your grandmother's room, how would you describe that walk? And then transcribe all that and then edit it and work back and forth with him um, to, um, to, to create the narration and then go into a studio. And, and there are various uh, ways of working with people to get narration. You just have to figure out the best way to do it. Sometimes people read better and sometimes um, I, I'll say to them the line um, and have them say it back. It all depends on, on how, how they best kind of respond to making stuff sound as close as possible to the to the tape. And that's, I mean, the trick is to try and make people, you know, forget that there's narration as much as possible and to match the voice as closely as possible to the tape around it. I guess my question was kind of similar. I was I was just curious, when, when you have a, um, a narrator who's also like a character in the story, if there's a danger of 
um, you, you want them to become really lifelike and kind of in some ways, you know, get their personality out there, but you don't want them to ham it up so much that it seems contrived. And is there, you know, do you have any secrets to trying to walk that line? How do you, in, in what, um, well, I mean, I think that it has to do with, in, in tape, you know, stuff that, I mean, you're always looking for that, when I'm, you're always looking for that, what, what these pieces are, hopefully, are just kind of stringing together those moments that feel like real life, you know, and, and dumping the stuff that's contrived and speechifying. I mean, it's not, it's more of a, it's more of an issue of leaving stuff out of, out of tape that, that feels contrived than having to worry about the, the narration. Um, and, uh, and that's bad tape anyway. Contrived stuff is bad. So it's kind of, it's not even, I'm not even, you know, thinking about it. It's just, if, if something sounds contrived, then it's out. And if something sounds like real, then hopefully, or, or then it's in. Um, and that's, that's the process. The, um, la the last piece I did that was self-narrated, um, the guy um, just got out of prison and uh, had him narrate his story. And the first time was just scratch tracks, uh, which I had him do in my studio with, uh, you know, traffic going by and everything. And I ended up using probably maybe half of that because his uh, girlfriend came in. And I was kind of irritated that he brought his girlfriend in, but you know, whatever. And, uh, and I said, well, why don't you, why don't you just bring Evelyn in and, and tell Evelyn the story, you know, because he was, you know, he's, this is the first time he'd ever really done this. And I ended up, you know, taking him into the studio and doing more tracks and it was terrible. He was hamming it up and he kind of liked the, you know, the spotlight of being in the studio. And then I brought him back to the apartment and finished and having him tell the story to, to someone was a, was a great device, uh, for that, for that story. A lot of times when I'm doing um, narration with people, I'll actually sit and kind of put my hands on both of their shoulders and make them look me in the eye and do it that way to try and get as warm, intimate, and kind of human a read as, as possible. So, so to, to go back to what you said you did for Ghetto 101, they recorded stuff at home, sort of what was going on they, in their or daily Or in the streets, life. yeah. So okay. they recorded 100 a, a hours of tape or whatever it was. And then I would I cut the tape. I'd cut it in half and in half and in half and in half, and then it starts to come together like a jigsaw puzzle. Everybody, or a crossword puzzle, or whatever it is, I think everybody here probably knows that experience. And then there are holes. I mean, there has to be, it's, I've never done a piece without narration. Um, and it's impossible to do a long piece, I, I think, without narration. I mean, there has to be some kind of through line. I've, I, or I can't do it. I don't, I, I don't I have to do it, in, to do in, it. in jail with a mentally ill, and it was, it was, yeah, total bust. I, I can't. I can't do it. So, so then, so then I know what the holes are. So it's just like writing for yourself, except it's someone else. So you know you have to get from point A to point B, and then you you work on figuring out how to do that. So and it's, that it's no different part. than being a reporter yourself, or you know, it's, your narrator is like you. I mean, and and it's just their voice that's telling the story in their words instead of you. Okay, and that was the part that you had them, that the, you yes. wrote, and then they right. would read it or you would right. have them. But, I mean, in my general rule, and this is just the way I do things, I mean, it, I mean, the less narration, the better. I mean, the trick is to try and, I mean, narration should be like poetry. It's like the, 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 the one sentence or the two sentences to get as much across as possible. And the trick is to, um, to shave it down as far as possible and have it all, all be tape. I mean, I, it, the perfect piece would be an all-tape piece, but I haven't figured out how to do that yet. They're both doing. They're both in college. One of the kids is um, heading to law school and is uh, planning to run for mayor of Chicago. In fact, he's a really brilliant kid. 
Um, and the other kid is doing has had struggles. I mean, you didn't hear him on this tape as much, but he had he had no kind of family when he was growing up, except his sisters. His his dad wasn't there, and his mom died when he was 12. And he's still sort of recovering from that. They're both 22 now. Um, and uh, but he's in college, and he emails me every day, um, and he's doing good. So, okay, let's move on to the next piece. We got started late. I don't know if we're going to run late. Um, I don't, or whether we should. Uh, Edit out. Maybe I should jump to the next one. And my one funny one, I'm gonna let go. I think. <laughs> you want to hear about someone with uh, cancer or someone who uh, just got out of prison? <laughs> the cancer one's the funny one. Uh, or a Bible salesman. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. Um, are we really ending at 4:15? Okay. 4:15 is we, we're one minute away. We've paid one. Yeah. This okay. Oh well. Um, well, I, I want to play the um, scenes from a transplant, and it actually this isn't a funny excerpt, but the the woman who the story is about and who is self-narrated is an exceptional person, and when she asked me to do a story on her having a bone marrow transplant, I thought this is. You know, this is crazy. Um, and, and it's not a, it wasn't a subject I was particularly interested in. If I saw a story on discovery about bone marrow transplant, I don't think I would really watch it. Um, but the reason I decided to do it was because of Rebecca, because she was an amazing character. And, um, and it really speaks to, in, in some ways, it, it didn't matter what the story was. She was, it mattered that she was going through a journey and that she was going to tell her story and she was able to tell it. And she was insightful and she, she was a natural reporter, so she was able to report on her illness. And uh, this, you're gonna have to skip my second and go to the third. This picks up when she's leaving um, Omaha, Nebraska, where she traveled to from Maryland to have her transplant and she's had it and she's, and she's leaving. For the first couple weeks I was in Omaha, I felt like I was on an assembly line. You come in through a revolving door, you get on the line, you get your catheter, you get your stem cells removed, you get your high-dose chemo, you get your stem cells back. So now I was leaving, walking fast, head up. Suddenly I was the veteran, the old pro. And there was a scared old man with his family who had just arrived for his transplant, looking shaky and small as he sat huddled by the door. You know, you don't feel too good, but, you know, at least it goes by pretty, you know, in a couple, you know, it's good as the white cells come back pretty fast. So, you know, just a matter of about 10 days there where you're really vulnerable. Then we say goodbye to Lorraine. How's Graham doing? Her husband, Graham, is still on a respirator. She tells us that she's losing hope. Starting to feel like it's I tell her to be optimistic, but I don't know why I'm saying this. In my heart, I know she's right to prepare herself for Graham's death. It's not a good scene. Here I am leaving, getting out of town alive, and Lorraine's world is falling apart. I feel terrible for her, but mostly I want to get the hell out of here. I want to run. 
Still, I hug her and I tell her not to lose hope. Well, that's pretty scary. That's pretty scary. But it's early for that still. It's early about for that. I have a weird sense of this whole thing with Graham because, I mean, well, now it looks bad for Graham, but for a while there I was thinking it could be, you know, he could pull through and make it and the bone marrow transplant wouldn't really work for me and I could be down and he could be up. And, I mean, nothing's guaranteed here at all. Okay, take care. We'll call you. Yes, we'll call you. Okay. Take care. Okay. Give Graham a kiss for us. Can you get in there to kiss him? Okay, then do. Bye. Bye, Thomas. wasn't the funny one. Thanks. I, I want to say, I was just, I, before um, we end, and which we have to do pretty soon, I think. I think we can go to 4.30 maybe, but yeah, so we have about 10 more minutes. But um, Dan has been a great, uh, Johanna said how he's been a sounding board, and he has. He was the producer of uh, Weekend All Things Considered, which was my home for, how many years were you there? Four. <laughs> Four years when I first started in radio, and um, it's it's so important to find, even if it's just one person who you trust to listen to your stuff, because I know a lot of you are going to end up. I mean, this, the the fact is that at at NPR, um, there are so many amazing people, um, but there are also editors who don't know radio, um, and it's really important to find people you trust to run stuff by, and also to trust yourself. And if someone tells you that something's wrong, and and you know they're wrong. Don't listen and just fight like hell to get get through um, what you want to get through and you'll never you'll never regret it but you it's really important to find a community of people who who share your aesthetic um, or even just one person so that when you think you're going crazy and people are telling you that something sucks and to cut it um, that that if they're wrong that you can be sure that they're wrong and uh, you'll never ever ever regret you know holding on to something um, you know when you know when you know that it's the right thing to do, and that's what makes. I mean, a lot of times when things get edited too much, um, you, it, it, it's a process of kind of pulling off the uh, shaving down the the detail and, and the edges, and it's those details and the pauses and the laughs and the, you know, that that's the real life stuff, the offhanded comments, and that's the stuff you want to hold on to for 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 dear life. Um, the process of editing for me is. Um, and I bet it's the same way for Dan. It's this, it's this very kind of emotional sort of process. I mean, you have 80 hours of tape or 100 hours of tape, and you listen to it, and there's stuff that you love, and there's stuff that you hate. And the more that you listen to it, the stuff that you know, the stuff that you loved a little bit, you start to hate. Um, and then the stuff that you kind of loved, you start to hate. And the stuff you loved, you hate. And then finally, it's the stuff that if you had to drop it, you'd want to shoot yourself in the head. And that's the stuff that ends up in the final piece. And that's the only stuff that ends up in the final piece. And also, don't, I mean, if you, I've also found, and not, you know, this is just, I mean, I've been lucky enough, I was lucky enough to get a grant from CPB when I was young, um, which let me do, like, some good pieces. And then that was, that was able, it was kind of this, like, uh, snowball thing, because I could do pieces and then get more grants. And, whoa. Um, but um, the, 
Uh, I was in Tony uh, Khan's thing earlier today, and, and there was talk about doing stuff that lasts. And, I mean, if you can do, like, a two-minute piece that, like, really means something to you, like, totally go for it. Don't, don't like, if that's the kind of radio that you're interested in doing, don't worry about how long it is. Cut it down until it's, like, the perfect nugget of stuff and, and, and let it go at that. Don't make things longer just because you have to fill up space. Try to do, like things that, you know, mean something to you and mean something to the people who you've done stories about I always, the people who hear them. I always know when Dave has an award winner, when I'll, I'll ask him, you know, how the piece is going, he'll say he hates it. It's absolutely terrible. And it's going to, you know, you know it's going to win a Peabody. A <laughs> couple more questions. I'm uh, introducing the evil word television, which both of you do. And um, I'm curious about, I know the transplant was shot at the same time for television, and I thought maybe you could discuss a little when it's appropriate to have the camera there and when it's not and when it's hurt you radio-wise and not. Well, you know, it's um, someone asked about the microphone and, you know, this $1,000 stereo microphone that, that CPB bought me um, was not used for this. It's a cheap little microphone on a, on a digital camera. And um, it was really funny because John Dingus, we, this won an award, and he, he, you know, got up there at Columbia University and said, "This is an example of, you know, this amazing use of rich sound and everything." And I just thought this little tiny little cheap, you know, like the worst kind of microphone. So I mean, if 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 you're in the right place and, and sort of like a, you know, a snapshot, if you have all the conditions right, the sound, um, you know, you can still get good sound with a with a bad uh, microphone. I don't know if that's your question. Um, well, it's not just that. It's also about uh, the access that you get to people. Does that change? And also, has this helped you financially to do more stuff and to keep things going to double-purpose stuff? I actually did this when I, while I was waiting to, um, you know, try to get someone interested in the, in the film. And uh, I didn't have any contacts or anything. I mean, there's 500 channels out there, but everybody wants it to be just, you know, their story to be done in, in their particular way. So while I was waiting, I did it as a, I pulled the audio um, and and uh, did did the radio documentary. And uh, again, I don't think that answered your question, though. <laughs> uh, I, I'm a, I don't do um, video stuff. I'm kind of a purist person. But I, we were, I was doing a panel with um, Nikki and Davia and a bunch of other people, and this kind of came up. And I do think that, um, I don't think that necessarily a camera, um, you know, you can you can get good intimate stuff with a camera. You can get good intimate stuff with a microphone, and, and you can, it, it's all in the way that you approach your subjects. And just having a camera doesn't necessarily mean that the, that the intimacy is lost. I mean, it's about the way you approach your subjects. And you can go in with a, with a notepad, you know, just reporting for print and totally screw up, you know, a, an interview and a, and a mood. It's um, a small camera, too. So... I think that's it's not a big sound crew with lights and everything. It's it's pretty much just like having a, a microphone. Some people think that the microphone I use is a camera, so it's about as big as the as the video camera. It's going to be on what channel is this on? <laughs> right, right. Well, you've led right into my question, which is uh, if um, how do you deal with um, people who are intimidated by microphones and make them comfortable with the equipment? I like to think that I have a special skill, but um, it, uh, Albert Mazels, I got a chance to meet Albert Mazels, and he said uh, he, uh, he's, he's, I don't know if 
people know he did Salesman and Gimme Shelter. And Everyone should see the movie Salesman. 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 Um, and, uh, you know, it was sort of this lifelong thing, you know, and, and to meet Albert Mazels, and I talked to him. He, he, he loves to talk, and he said, you have the gaze. You have the gaze. <laughs> and, I, and I believed him, you know. I was like, you know, yeah, you know, I, he, I think that's it. And, uh, and I went and I talked to somebody who also met, and I'm, I'm sure he, he had only told me that, you know. And I, I talked to someone else had, uh, who, who talked to Albert Mazels, and she said, yeah, he told me I have the gaze. <laughs> so, but, you know, there is a thing just about looking someone in the eye and, and making them feel comfortable and, um, and letting, letting them talk, asking them. I mean, it's just like regular life. I've never had a microphone have an impact. I mean, I've been stressed out, and, like, that's stressed people out. You know what I mean? But my microphone has never stressed anybody out any more than, you know, what kind of mood I'm in. Uh, and it's just not about that. You just have to, you know, treat people like normal human beings and look them in the eye and act nice and like they respond, I think. It's just not been my experience, I guess. Really? Well, also, if you spend time, more time with them, that helps. Because, I mean, the stories that I think that Dave and I do, we have the luxury, thanks again to CPB, to spend time with, with characters and, and Make them more comfortable with us. Well, it's just I, I, you know, by way of an example, I was uh, gathering some sound in a uh, commercial kitchen uh, a few days ago, and I and I was you know it was it was pretty innocent. It wasn't you know a, a Geraldo Rivera expose or anything like that. And um, I had a, 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 a chef in the kitchen literally start yelling at me to you know get out and, and, and move on. He was just. Completely. But had you told him that you were going to record? Uh, no, no. Okay, just, well, that's, that'll do it. <laughs> that could help. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. But, um, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering, does intense emotion in the, this, the subjects that you're doing a piece about or experiencing, does that ever make you retreat? Or want to retreat, or or is that something that at some point in the past you overcame and now you don't have that conflict? I mean, it, I don't. If if what what I'm recording is making them, I mean, if it's the intensive, I mean, I always think of doing these stories as sort of a combination of a whole bunch of things like journalism and also like sometimes it's almost like social work or something like that. And if it seems like it's like a healthy kind of vetting of of emotions, I mean, emotional tape is good tape. So if things are getting emotional, then generally I'm pretty happy about that. Um, so, but if it seems to be something where there where there's some damage being done, then then that is certainly something that you kind of turn away from. But I, I um I think I have some a degree of like empathy, but it's almost like a therapist kind of thing. It's like I'm empathic, but I'm not. You know, I'm letting them talk, and there's definitely a distance between the two of us. And I I mean I don't. I'll cry occasionally, but very, very rarely when someone's talking about something and, and um, certainly not, um, you know, kind of to, you know, the, the trick is it's all about them and, and letting them do their thing and, and, and emote and say whatever they want to say and not bringing the, not bringing the um, focus back on yourself. Well, you know, if, in, this, in the stories that, that I'm trying to do more of, I don't really have, it's not my call to say, you know, is this too emotional? I mean, it's it's. I'm just sort of there, and if it's happening, it's it's happening. And it, I know that it's. You know, I'll probably 
realize while it's happening that this may be a great moment, a good scene, but it, it, it's, you know, if it's a father talking to a son, I'm not going to step in and say, you know, this is, this has to stop. So um, if, if it works, it, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm trying to sort of document and stand back and, and be there. I mean, the trick is to be there enough, you know, enough time so that you actually are witnessing different ranges of emotions. I think my question is coming from, um, I'm working on a project right now that's very emotional for me because it's with my grandmother. And I find that sometimes when things get so personal, I feel like I, I want to step back because I, it, it's like it's getting too personal and too dangerous to, to have the microphone in her face. And, I, and it but is it, is it a story that you're a part of? Yeah, it is. So that's a different sort of, <laughs> that's a different thing than what we're doing. I mean, because what we're doing is, this is not, these are, these are about like disappearing ourselves, and, and so that's a whole other realm of There's one exception. I, I just did a story on my mom um, moving into a retirement home, and let me tell you, I mean, be careful when you do stories on your family. It's, uh, it's a landmine, and uh, <laughs> full, of, full of landmines. So I, I, can, I can relate, you know. One, uh, one more question. I'm Ben Adair. Um, I'm wondering how much of your time you spend making radio and how much of your time you spend doing business stuff, writing grants and so on. Not enough of the latter for me. Um, I think Dave always says that, what, 25% of the time should be fundraising. And I, I find I, I just it's so hard that um, I probably do about maybe, if I'm lucky, 5 or 10% development and then the rest radio, and that's, that's not enough. There were times when I was doing 50, 40 percent of my time fundraising, and those were not good times. Um, but uh, it's probably 25 percent. But I mean, you have to stay disciplined. I mean, the, the, the thing is, you have to look. You're, you always have to look a year out, you know, because that's how long it takes for money to come in. So it's just a matter of like, you know, setting aside time every week when you're going to do nothing but fundraising, and uh, you have to do it. Can you can you also talk about sources for money besides CPB? Mom, <laughs> NEA. We both run have nonprofits, which was uh, which made it which is crucial. I mean, I think. Well, there's no question. I mean, if you want to do this model of starting your own company, you have to be a nonprofit or have a nonprofit fiscal sponsor. But CPB has been, you know, is a godsend. I mean, that's what makes all this stuff possible. And um, NEA is 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 a great source of money, also. And um, we do a lot of, you know, we anything for, for our company, like a 1000 bucks is like golden. I mean, that's great. So we go to small foundation, New York foundations. State arts councils. State arts County councils. County arts councils. Yeah. Humanities are kind of tough because you need. And the big foundations. You know, the, the golden, you know, every, what everybody's looking for is general operating support, you know, which is not. Because, you know, if, if you're a year out, I mean, one of the great things about radio is that you want to be able, when something amazing comes up, you know, it's you should be flexible enough to be able to do it, and that's how you know my process is very much like when something presents itself, I jump all over it. And if you're a year out, that's that's a problem. So you know, my grants are complete fabrications and lies. I mean, I say this is going to be the most. I have absolutely no idea. You know, it's Jeff Ramirez here. Yeah, Jeff is in the back. I see, but um, that's okay. He knows. Um, you know, you say this is going to be the most amazing thing you've ever heard in your life, and I, I have absolutely no clue, but you just, you know, you go on faith. Um, but um, I really shouldn't have said that, Jeff. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but, uh, 
But the trick is to try and get operating support, which is someone saying, we believe in what you do and here's some money to do it. And I haven't been able to do that yet in any, in any, any big way. Um, so hopefully at some point that will happen. If, yeah, that helped. Nope. Not yet. Nope. Thank you all for coming. Thanks a lot.